friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today we're going to talk about Religious Freedom. International Religious Freedom Day occurred earlier this week, so we've invited Christine Pratt. She's with the HHS to talk to us later on in the show about religious freedom and what the Office for Civil Rights is most focused on, given the current temper of our time. But first, we have with us a very dear friend, Cristina Arriaga. She's a fellow Cuban-American and former vice chair for the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and executive director for Beckett Law. She took part in a big event for Religious Freedom Day alongside Roger Severino and Ambassador-at-Large for Religious Freedom Sam Brownback earlier this week. We get a look at that insightful conversation as well as discussing her recent piece in USA Today on cancel culture and also First Amendment protections. Welcome to the show, Christina Arriaga. Thank you so much for having me on. Christina, it's been a long time since I've seen you in D.C. Um, ever since COVID hit, no more wonderful parties and wonderful conferences where I get to see you. I know. These are, as everyone says, different and strange times. Yes, we pray that they'll be over soon and we'll go back to normal life. But in the meantime, you did have an online event <laughs> that, that was very interesting earlier this week, International Religious Freedom Day, called Religious Freedom in the Age of COVID-19 and beyond. We have a friend of the show's Father Ben Kiley. I think you know Father Ben. He works with persecuted Christians in the Middle East. And mm-hmm. I know that the persecuted church in general, all across the world, is very much hurting in this time of lockdown. How do you feel that the age of COVID has impacted religious freedoms? Yeah, the event today was fascinating. It was hosted by the domestic side of the United States government mm-hmm. and the international side of the domestic of the government in terms of religious freedom. So we have people from Health and Human Services, the Department of Justice, domestically and internationally. Ambassador Brownback, whom, as you know, is the ambassador at large for religious freedom. And Ambassador Bremberg, who is our ambassador to Geneva, where he represents us before international organizations. And both domestically and internationally, the religious communities worldwide have been terribly affected domestically because there has been a difference in treatment between nonprofit and profit businesses and church congregations. And internationally, the same has happened. And unfortunately, also in many religious organizations have been made into scapegoats. What is going on? So sadly, the religious communities worldwide are suffering even greater levels of discrimination and persecution under COVID. Yeah, because here in the United States, we're feeling it as believers in many parts of the country. We have seen our church attendance curtailed, like severely curtailed, while at the same time, businesses and things like public protests are going on without any restrictions that are applying to people of faith. Well, yeah, in many, in many states, for instance, ABC stores, which are providers of 
of liquor and wine stores were considered essential business. As a drinker of red wine myself, I <laughs> you can sympathize. The government, <laughs> I can sympathize. <laughs> but at the same time, religious communities could not gather, gather under the same conditions. So, for instance, in many states, you could drive through a restaurant and be given a bag with food. However, you could not drive through and go to confession in many Catholic churches in Maryland. In Mississippi, there was a law in the state where only one person could be in the place of worship. So it could either be the priest or you or one congregant. However, the same did not apply to the protests that were taking place or even to go shopping at a local mall. So the Department of Justice and the Department of Health and Human Services have done a terrific job ensuring that the same exact treatment that is given to for-profit and nonprofit businesses is given to congregations and houses of worship. So I would suppose that a lot of that was simply calling them up and explaining that the laws have to be applied evenly and that religious liberty is, is our number one liberty. And it's not, it doesn't come after our liberty of economic access or anything else. Yeah, exactly. Religious freedom is the ability to live according to your deeply held convictions. It is not the poor little sister of the human rights family. It is not the little sister of our civil rights. It is our First Amendment. If a doctor can go into the room of an individual who's suffering from COVID, that doctor has to realize that we're not only made out of a body, we also have mind and spirit. And in many hospitals, for instance, people died alone and were unable to receive last rites because the hospitals decided that a physician could come in, but a physician of the soul could not come in. And this is a terrific affront to all of us at Americans. Whenever the government starts to control what's in your mind and in your heart, what you can believe and what you can express for any given reason, then we're entering into a very dangerous territory when it comes to our religious freedom and all of our civil rights. In fact, even in the state of New York, you have both Catholics and Jewish populations suing the state because of this kind of unequal application of lockdown laws. Isn't that true? Correct. Actually, Notre Dame University just inaugurated a religious uh, freedom clinic at their law school headed by my former colleague and friend, Stephanie Barkley. And it was our religious freedom traditions at their best. It was a group of Muslims and Christians advocating for the rights of a Jewish school. And there was another brief where there was a same connection between different religious groups that understand that when they defend each other and advocate for each other. They're also defending the very basic principle contained in Dignitatis Humanae and codified in our First Amendment, which is that we all have religious freedom by virtue of the human dignity with which we are born. This is not about who God is. This is not about defining what the, your particular theology, theological beliefs may be. This is about who we are as human beings. Christina, you used to be the executive director of Beckett. And one of the things that always struck me so beautifully about Beckett is the way that it supports every kind of religious belief. So it's it's ecumenical in that sense, and it causes all people who believe in God and want to live out their beliefs in the public square to band together to defend from secular aggression. But all of us in the same boat together, which I think is very valuable because we are in the same boat together. Yes, we are. And at Beckett, we defended and, and they continue to defend. We like to say Anglican to Zoroastrian. Yes, I love that. A to Z. But this is not because 
all religious beliefs are the same. And this is not some sort of relativistic approach to the world. Uh, this is because we should all firmly believe in what we believe and genuinely be able to express it and disagree with each other if necessary. But the government doesn't get to determine what we believe and how we express it. And that is the key foundational idea behind our laws in this country and our, our civil rights. The government doesn't get to intervene as it happens in, as you and I well know, in our dear native Cuba. I want to talk to you about that and about a piece that you wrote in USA Today, which spoke very strongly to me. But first, about Ambassador Sam Brownback. What is he focusing on when he views international religious freedom and how the United States can support those efforts? Ambassador Brownback has done something quite revolutionary. It is the first time that the Department of State under the leadership of Secretary Pompeo held minister-level meetings devoted solely to the idea of religious freedom. And Ambassador Brownback was able to form a coalition, an alliance of now 33 countries plus observers whose mission is to advocate for individuals whose religious freedom is being violated in other countries. And in fact, it is thanks to that alliance and that coalition that hundreds of believers were recently released when this coalition asked these governments to ensure that under COVID-19, believers were not arrested arbitrarily. So he has been extraordinarily successful at doing this worldwide and establishing the gold standard of American religious freedom as a principle for many countries around the world. Oh, that's amazing. How wonderful that the United States can use its great power in such a wonderful way. And then it makes me wonder if this is something that would be, we're facing an election now in the next few days. It makes me wonder if this is something that would be held up and supported so much in a Biden administration. What, what do you think? From knowing how Biden was a vice president for eight years and, and how things went under Obama. Unfortunately, the Obama administration did not have a stellar record when it came to religious freedom domestically or internationally. And I say this with affection because there were individuals, like in every administration, that were extraordinarily principled and fought for those rights within the administration. However, it is of note that, for instance, the Little Sisters of the Poor case yes. has become <laughs> under the Affordable Care Act. Well, when Congress approved the Affor Affordable Care Act, they issued exemptions to the largest employer in the world, our U.S. military to Exxon, to big oil companies, to New York State. However, they end to certain religious groups as long as they were serving the same religious faith, but to the Little Sisters of the Poor who serve people from all faiths and only have 3,000 employees, the Affordable Care Act forced them to pay for 20 contraceptives, four of which were abortion-causing drugs. The same thing happened with Hobby Lobby, a privately held small family corporation modeled after biblical principles who were pro-life and they had no objection whatsoever to 16 out of the 20 contraceptives that the FDI was forcing them to pay for. They just would not pay for four of these drugs, which the government admitted were abortion-causing drugs. 
drugs. Those issues themselves became problematic. The other issue is zoning laws in every state. Unfortunately, many times when you have cities that are tax hungry, it'll be that little church that serves a poor, which all of a sudden stands in the way of a big Costco being built. Or it's that convent that has been serving for 100 years and all of a sudden the city will decide that they don't want more traffic in that area. So they'll try to push the convent out of the city. So there are many domestic issues under the Obama administration. I cannot predict how the Biden administration is going to fare. We can assume it'll be sort of in the same thing, right? In the same ballpark, I would guess, since he was vice president under Obama. He must have been part of that administration and some of the decision making, I would think. What about internationally? Ambassador Sam Brownback is a star, but I believe that that post was went unfilled for a long time under Obama? It went unfilled for some time, but then Ambassador David Saperstein was named, and I have to say I have the deepest respect for mm -hmm. Ambassador Saperstein, and he did the best that he could. However, the Obama administration only afforded a certain amount of personnel to his office. Under the Trump administration, Ambassador Brownback's staff has increased exponentially. There has been a lot more access to religious freedom as a priority. And Ambassador Saperstein, whom again, I consider a friend and I love and I respect, attends the meetings that Ambassador Brownback hosts with the International Religious Freedom Roundtable. Ambassador Brownback, every single Tuesday when he's in town, will sit with whomever wants to talk to him. Sometimes there are 200 people there. They schedule a time. It'll be a tiny religious group that no one knows anything about. Or it'll be a huge congregation from another country. Ambassador Brownback will listen and lend an ear and inspire everyone to advocate for each other. This is something Ambassador Saperstein was unable to do under the Obama administration. And the ministerials that you spoke about have also, of course, only been possible because of the increased funding of that office and the staff. Yes, and the resources. And the same has happened under the leadership of Roger Serena at the Department of Health and Human Services. He has been able to apply staffing and resources so that the Office of Health and Human Services, for instance, can protect doctors, nurses, physicians who do not want to be forced to participate in an abortion. It has been a long held tradition in the United States that no physician will ever have to perform or participate in an abortion and that they should not be forced. And unfortunately, that has started to happen and Roger Serino established this office because he says, rightly so, that it should not depend on the director of the Office of Civil Rights on whether or not these laws that are in our Constitution and in our statutes are protected, but that there are people who are dedicated to protecting those laws regardless of who's in charge of that office. You know, you mentioned all those people across the world who've been freed from uh, jail, I guess, or detention after intervention that was funded by our country through... Um, the office of the ambassador. I wonder if those people realized that how much hinged on an American election so far away from them. I think they know better than most Americans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, they know better, right? They're paying attention. <laughs> they are paying attention. I, during my tenure as commissioner on the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, I traveled to faraway places like Iraq and Saudi Arabia and Myanmar. And in all of these places, I could go to the smallest of villages Nigeria. And people there were very aware of American politics, who was in charge, who was the president and the vice president, what their policies were. It was very heartening to know that agree or disagree with what happens in this imperfect country 
of hours that people abroad watch intently and with great admiration at the kind of debates and freedoms that we can have. I remember I was in Bahrain and President Trump had just been elected and we were two Republican appointees and two Democrat appointees speaking to the government. One of them asked, well, what happens if President Trump doesn't work out? My Republican colleague said, well, we will impeach him. This is why we have Congress. And this is, and he explained to this government official how in our country, the president is not a king. We have three branches that balance each other. And the representative from Bahrain was absolutely shocked that a Republican would say, Republican or Democrat, this is not about partisanship. This is our, about our freedom as Americans. It was a very moving moment. Well, we have a lot to be proud of in our country, Christina. And you and I have a lot of the same outlook when it comes to this because we both are Cuban Americans and we have a very strong sense of the the beauty of the United States that's built into it through its constitution and its laws and its culture and how it protects people in ways that is uh, unthinkable in countries like Cuba. You wrote a really fabulous piece in USA Today called My Family Fled Fidel Castro's Cuba Where Cancel Culture Was Deadly Serious and you really connected some dots in a really interesting way. I really recommend it to our listeners. You started by talking about something that has been my experience too as a minority someone who came to United States 12 I didn't speak English then and, and I had a sort of a rough landing <laughs> in the United States I think you had a, a similar experience there were moments when things got rough and people weren't as kind as they might have been but it's never made me want to retaliate or lash out as you write yourself because it's that right to free speech to to be able to say things sometimes that are wrong and then walk them back and make mistakes and talk it over that makes America such an amazing place. Yes, indeed. And I am quite concerned with what's going on right now. The Cato Institute uh, published a report stating that 62% of Americans are unwilling, unable, afraid to share their political views for fear of offending others. Mm -hmm. And if we cannot talk about, if we cannot have an exchange of ideas I'm paraphrasing a, a, an author who once said, my mind is like a bad neighborhood where I would rather not be alone. We, we, were, never <laughs> meant, we were never meant to have thoughts that live in isolation from other people's thoughts and ideas. And the beauty of our country is that most people want to have a conversation and want to learn. But right now we have a situation where, for instance, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education is an organization that is defending the rights of students to to be able to express themselves and exchange ideas. We have a New York Times bestselling book called The Cuddling of the American Mind, which talks about what's happening to our students when they go off to college. And the response to the piece was astounding. I've written a number of, of topics. Within an hour, I had over 100,000 people no way. Um, retweeting the, the piece. I have received emails and tweets and uh, Facebook posts from people from all over the world, people that I had not heard from in 30 years. And I think it struck a chord because people have been so concerned about not being able to talk to each other for fear of offense. And this is not this is not a way to live, certainly not the American way. Well, you drew a parallel with what goes on in Cuba, where Castro, Fidel Castro created something called the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution, where neighborhood volunteers are drafted 
to spy on their neighbors and everything that you do is you're being watched and everything is being reported and depending on how well you do according to the revolution then you're able to participate socially and do certain things like move <laughs> I mean in Cuba you have no liberty so the, yeah. the simplest thing you have to earn and they also have those shaming rallies I've talked to people who have been shamed publicly like that they'll they'll organize a hundred people will come and stand in front of your house where you live with your husband and your children and they'll scream obscenities for hours so that everyone in the house is terrified imagine what that must be like but you draw a very close comparison between that and the cancel culture where I can tell you for instance my 20 year old junior college student I've been watching him work from home on and off for the last few months it's a tremendous amount of pressure that he feels to conform to a certain kind of worldview he feels it from the other students and from his professors yes and actually I spoke about this with my niece who is a freshman and is facing the same difficulty she said she had a teaching assistant tell her that some ideas were inherently bad and therefore not worth discussing that's convenient (laughs) yeah this had to do with the political realm and I have seen the same thing in Canada but if this sounds eerily familiar to our listeners, it's because it's been going on. I'm sure your listeners are aware that a liberal leftist, New York Times editor, resigned precisely because she felt she had no freedom of press in the New York Times and for expression. And it's a cultural shift that even former President Obama has condemned as a, a being bad. I mean, this is something that both sides are looking at. The author of Harry Potter wrote a letter for Harp, I'm sorry, signed the letter with dozens of others intellectuals saying, this is not a good thing. Who are the self-appointed guardians of, of political purity and why are they not, why are they censoring others? Look, most of the great changes that have happened in this country, great country of ours, like the giving women the right to vote, uh, the abolition of slavery, exemptions for religious people, our entire civil rights movement were led by people who were considered offensive Mm -hmm. at the time. But we were able to talk about it and be persuaded and the laws change. And my biggest concern is something that Greg Lukianoff in his book, The Calling of the American Mind, um, articulates beautifully. He says, we have a First Amendment because we have a free speech culture. The First Amendment laws alone will not protect us. If our culture changes, our laws will change. And the argument... I make in this piece, then it's not hyperbolic to say that we will have Fidel Castro-like laws. He said within the revolution, everything outside of the revolution, nothing. That is exactly what's happening on right now within what the woke culture thinks, anything, anything that's not considered woke enough is canceled. And this is unfortunately what our next generation will have to fight and we cannot allow that to happen. I do think that that's the key point of your piece in USA Today is that the laws exist downstream of the culture. So the laws can't protect us forever as as the culture changes. You're absolutely right about that and it makes me think also about religious liberty. If the culture becomes more and more secular and religious people are pushed more and more to the margins, then the laws are going to start reflecting that and it's wonderful that people like the Religious Freedom Institute and the the United States, the Religious Freedom Office and the Civil Rights Division of HHS are concentrating on these things because you have to keep up those boundaries around these important freedoms that we have in the United States. Absolutely. We cannot take it for granted. Your average American 
loves diversity and wants to meet their neighbor and wants to protect religious freedom. <laughs> it is those people that need to stand up to the bullies that are saying to be religious is medieval and religion should be treated as secondhand smoke. That's never been what we have done in this country. And on the country, religious institutions provide hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, access to services they need and comfort. And religion, religious belief is peaceful. Religious belief, of course, is good for our country and is something that we need to preserve if we want to preserve our great way of life. The other option is to live like people do in China, where the government is in charge of everything. You're monitored with everything you do. You can only buy certain things or access certain schools if your records are clean, and that includes not being religious. And regrettably, if we continue down this trajectory, that may very well be the future or of the average American. They may not be in prison right away, but certainly the government is going to keep a close eye on people that want to live according to their own convictions because those people become a danger to the government. And it seems these days, if, if you're watching the news that the or, or participating that the big social tech, the tech companies, Twitter and Facebook, are, are seem to be participating in this squelching of, of freedom. Well, I would argue that Twitter did for a while, say my article contained sensitive views, which oh, did it? the article it doesn't go even. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook has made a huge effort to try to bound things out. Has he done a perfect job? No. Could he do better in certain areas? Yes. But they just a few days ago announced that they the oversight board, which is like the Supreme Court for Facebook, it has started to listen cases. So if someone's blocked on Facebook, Facebook has created a trust with $130 million independent of Facebook so that individuals, organizations can appeal. And they have 20 people who are going to be looking at these cases. And Facebook has said that they will abide whatever the decision of the oversight board makes. I think they recognize that there was an issue and they created a system through which people can appeal. Oh, that's wonderful. I hope that their oversight board contains people of different viewpoints. <laughs> Otherwise, their laws will be downstream of that, right? I hope so, too, because <laughs> as you know, it's not about the laws, it's about the culture. Um, and so far, Facebook has been trying to maintain a free speech culture. Let's hope that that also survives in their oversight board. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. And we touched upon lots of different subjects and you're very knowledgeable on, about all of them. So I can't thank you enough for sharing your wisdom with us and for all the work that you do. Well, thank you. I'm a big fan of your show. I was very honored to be asked to be on it. Well, thank I can't believe so I can't believe you haven't been on it before. It was a huge oversight. <laughs> we'll have to have you very soon we'll be keeping tabs on you and please keep writing your amazing pieces they really are striking a chord they certainly did with me thank you so much next we continue our talk on religious freedom with christine pratt she's the senior advisor on conscience and religious freedom for the office of civil rights at the department of health and human services stay with us right here on ewtn radio we'll be right back
Welcome to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and in this part of the show, we continue our conversation with Christine Pratt. She's Senior Advisor on Conscience and Religious Freedom for the Office for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Christine works closely with Roger Severino on a daily basis, tracking the issue of civil rights primarily through the religious freedom lens. So welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you very much for having me. Christine, I love to talk about the Office of Civil Rights within HHS because, explain to our listeners, it's a new office, isn't it? Yes, it was created two years ago by my boss, Roger Severino. He recognized rightly that religious liberty is a civil right and it should be defended just as ardently the same conviction that we defend our other civil rights. There had been instances where, and in fact, it had been featured in some United States Supreme Court cases. A really famous example is in the Hobby Lobby case where uh, our government, and in this case, it was the same agency, it was HHS, that was seeking to infringe the religious rights of the owners of Hobby Lobby. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court stepped in and said, of course, you cannot do that. So it's it's just very important that parties, not just in private litigation, but that there are attorneys, so many attorneys working for the federal government that understand the laws that are already in place and that enforce them properly. And so that's that's what the conscience for religious freedom, what we do, it's, it's called the conscience and religious freedom division. I've been really interested in that civil rights office since it was formed because as a medical professional I know that it protects people who work in healthcare from having to participate or perform procedures that they find violate their consciences things like abortion of course but and this is from a religious for me for instance it comes from a religious perspective so do you find yourself working with cases like that or do you focus on other kinds of things yes we we do work on cases like that our office issued a notice of violation um, last year in a case regarding a hospital in Vermont that did just what you described. It, it was their policy that nurses would not be exempted from assisting in abortions. And, um, you know, we let them know that they're in violation of federal law. And, and there are several federal laws on the books. They've been the, the oldest one has been on the books since the 1970s, and it was a very popular statute. It, it was it had uh, bipartisan support because it's, it's it really shouldn't be an extraordinary statement to say that wherever you stand on abortion and Roe v. Wade and all those other questions, surely a doctor or a nurse in the medical profession should not be forced to do something that violates their conscience. And, and so Congress ha- protects not not just doctors and nurses, but there, there's federal statutes that also protect individuals and organizations from paying for abortion, from referring for abortion, and, and other procedures as well, such as sterilization. And this seems to me that that it enables America to, to remain a pluralistic society where different kinds of people with different worldviews can coexist peacefully in the in the public square and interact yes. with the public without having to create their own little enclaves, right? So they can just be in the normal public square. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And you, you find, I, I think it's um, pretty well known that a country's tolerance for religious liberty, it provides a litmus test mm-hmm. for whether a society is truly diverse and whether there's, you know, flourishing of many different peoples in one place. And so um, you find, and and it's, it's being recorded even now, it's being noticed how even on an international stage it's just it's just amazing how you can you can look at how a country or a city or a state treats 
the the principle of religious liberty, and you'll find that they'll be much more draconian in other areas and other public policies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really fascinating. Well, that makes sense, right? Because if you have that kind of respect for other people built in, like baked into the cake of your culture and of your laws, then that's going to show in that most intimate part of ourselves, which is how we view the world and the exigencies of our of our moral conscience. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And it's it's interesting too. It's like a it's a temptation to uh, if a, a government or a leader has access to power. How do they steward that power? Do they use it mm-hmm. to try to control religious exercise or religious adherence? And even in countries that are not even uh, zealous for religion, you look at countries like China that are in- excessively controlling towards religion. And it's supposed to be otherwise, like, I mean, I guess you could say agnostic or atheistic. It'd be amazing to me that the level of control that we're seeing exerted, um, especially in recent times. In a couple of days, in just a few days, we're going to have an election in this country. Do you think that this Office of Civil Rights with its special focus on religious freedom and conscience rights. Could that exist mm-hmm. under a Joe Biden administration? Well, it's hard to comment speculatively. It's people of faith, or even just people, maybe people who don't have faith but respect people with faith mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and their conscience, they need to know what it means. And yeah. and it is a very uh, distinct difference. Because when, yeah. when the Democrats talk about diversity, which they talk about a lot, and civil rights, mm-hmm. civil rights, which comes up a lot, they don't see to include Americans of faith in their diversity and in their call for civil rights. That's very true that you see that overlooked in certain areas of our politics in our country. To answer your question, you know, just reflecting on it, whether a division like the division I work for, the Division of Conscience and Religious Freedom, could survive a Biden presidency, you know, my answer is I hope with all of my heart that it can, and I believe it absolutely should, Mm -hmm. because it's not a political question whether it is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, is that is that law? It is law. It's the Weldon Amendment. It's the Church Amendment. Is that law? Those are currently laws, and that's what our office enforces, just like Title VI, Title IX, protects against discrimination against sex and discrimination against race, discrimination on the basis of race. You know, the whole purpose of creating this division is to recognize that protecting religious freedom, it's, it's enshrined in the First Amendment. We have the, the freedom for religious exercise, and we also have the Establishment Clause, which puts a stop to how far that goes, but it, it's not, up, we're not voting it on, in, in this election, I would hope that we're not voting on the First Amendment and current federal law. Those are not on the ballot. Every American president should enforce the laws as they're written. And that's simply what the division sets out to do. So if anything, you know, my hope for our country, especially with regards to our specific division, is to realize this is American law. It's not Republican law. It's not, it shouldn't be just Republican favored laws. This is what makes America distinct. Absolutely, Christine. This is what makes our country shine above all others, I think, is that that real commitment to pluralism and diversity of thought of worldview, of viewpoint, you know, much more than just color of skin that that we seem to hear about most. You mentioned that earlier in the week, an event that was held for Religious Freedom Day. And tell us about that, Christine. October 27th is International Religious Freedom Day. And so it just seemed like a fine day to have an event. We love events. We love to celebrate. The name of the event is Religious Freedom in the Age of COVID-19 and Beyond. And there were four speakers at the event. The first is Roger Severino. 
and he is the director of the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services. There's Claire Murray, and she's the principal deputy associate attorney general at the Department of Justice. And there's Ambassador Sam Brownback. He's the U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom, as well as Ambassador Andrew Grimberg. And he's the representative of the United States to the Office of the United Nations and other international organizations in Geneva. And so it, it was a wonderful discussion because the first two speakers, uh, Roger and Claire, speak from a domestic perspective of what's going on inside the United States and what issues are at play during COVID-19 and, and spoke a little bit about beyond. And then the, the two ambassadors spoke from the, a more global perspective on what is happening with regards to religious freedom, looking at uh, how other countries are approaching protecting these very precious freedoms. Countries are certainly taking a different perspective and a different approach based on their cultures and their values. So one of the things that uh, our Catholic audience might be thinking about that they've heard on the news is the problem with clergy accessing patients in hospitals. Did that come up? Yes, we're very proud of the work that we've been able to do to help patients in hospitals access uh, chaplains and clergy of their choice during a time when a lot of hospitals where it's totally understandable having a really strong desire to make the hospital a safe place. There's mm -hmm. always that worry about the risk of infection. Unfortunately, however, some of the hospitals took a very draconian approach and put the hospital on such a level of lockdown that you have people sick in hospital beds and they're just desperately isolated. And it, it has caused um, a lot of consternation. And one of the, the biggest issues that we addressed at first, the issue of a person on their deathbed. And the doctor would ask, please admit clergy, please let the, the priest come in and perform the sacraments. And we would step in when we received a complaint from the family of a patient or sometimes the spouse of a patient who would say, you know, my loved one is not able to access their pre his or her priest and they're on their deathbed. And this, this is, you know, the denial of tremendously important spiritual comfort during a, a very, one of the most important moments in certainly the patient's life, um, but for the family as well. Oh my gosh, and it has eternal consequences. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Which maybe, maybe the hospital administrators don't understand. Maybe that's a problem. It's, it's interesting because when I do speak with hospital staff, it just takes that conversation to liaison, to explain. First of all, we have federal guidance. The Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services has promulgated guidance early on and during the COVID pandemic. And they have a sentence in there that says hospitals should provide patients with access to clergy. You know, we step in on a totally voluntary basis and we let the hospitals know that here's the advice of CMS. And um, if you would like to implement this, we would like to help you facilitate that because the patient would like access to clergy. And what and, kind um, of response do you get from hospitals? Were they just waiting to understand better or waiting to be told or do you get pushback? You know, sometimes it would it would be not at the immediate beginning of the conversation. They would certainly say in the beginning, we are so worried about of the course. health of our patients, to, uh, which is that's exactly what we say. We say, of course, of course, we <laughs> totally agree. We aren't asking you to abandon your reason or to do anything that is unsafe. But we would you would discuss with them, we would say, well, how about your staff, your janitors, your nurses, your doctors? How do you, how do you keep them safe? Mm -hmm. And they would answer, well, they would use 
PPE. And and so we said, great, okay, can can the clergy use PPE? And most of the time the hospital would say, oh, oh yeah. yes. <laughs> well, it, it, it comes down to understanding what's essential, right? That And that also brings right. up the case of um, different places, different um, municipalities and states who have that mm-hmm. have restricted, for instance, church attendance and temple attendance while mm-hmm. allowing other things to go forward because of a lack of understanding of the essential nature of our religious worship. Yeah, and it's it was really fascinating to hear Senator Brownback, I'm sorry, uh, Ambassador Brownback speak about this. He, he said, on a worldwide level, you'll see this temptation to scapegoat mm. religious minorities. And it was so fascinating to hear him describe that happening over the world where the, the governments were just so distrusting of, he said, particularly religious minorities, um, that they, they became concerned, oh, it's their fault that the virus oh. is here in our country or that it's spreading mm-hmm. through the country. And um, I've even spoken with hospital staff who said, we're so, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be bad. It's going to be their fault. It's going to be the priest's wow. fault or the rabbi's fault. And that's when we say, okay, let's talk, you know, the facts. Let's talk safety measures. How do you, and we just always bring it back to um, just very reasonable questions of how do you address the concerns of safety with people who are already moving throughout your hospital every day? And and once we, we speak on those levels, they were able to understand. And what's been fascinating too, I will say, is um, when you speak with hospital administrators who tend to spend more time around patients, they they are so aware of just the the effect of isolation mm-hmm. that it's having on the patients. And oh, they are, frequently, they feel so bad. They, they feel like their hands are tied and they feel like they're stuck in a place where you know, they, they feel terrible for their sad patients and the sick. I mean, we've all been sick in bed and felt the loneliness of that. Um, and in this, I'm sure to be in the hospital at this time is, is even that's exacerbated the, the loneliness and the isolation and the sadness that can come um, during this time. The son, and, um, of, the son of the father of, a, mm-hmm. of uh, one of my son's very close friends, mm-hmm. someone we've known for many, many years, just died yesterday mm. I think it was from COVID mm. he'd been in the hospital for a long time intubated mm. and I'm pretty sure he was away from his family the whole time and they were kept from seeing oh. him and I would mm. I would think that that was of all their suffering which is intense maybe that was 90% of it just the, the inability mm. to be there with him and hold his hand and accompany him and um, right. it went on for right. weeks. It went on for weeks oh. at the end of this man's life. And it's, it is very, very tragic. And it's even more tragic when you when you mention what you say about uh, people then pinning on their fears and everything and scapegoating mm-hmm. certain types of people mm-hmm. or certain believers mm-hmm. or minority believers. And we've seen a little bit of the, of, about that mm-hmm. in action and maybe in New York. I know that there's been some not very nice uh, rhetoric between the governor and the, the mayor and the, um, the Hasidic population in New York City, which makes yeah, me sad. Yeah. It seems like that same kind of scapegoating. I agree with you. Um, and I think it's, it goes back to, again, this this desire to control and we find it seems like you know this kind of scapegoating and this kind of this this extra anxious type of fear comes through when leadership feels like they just have no control and so then they start they start to get angry and they they start creating inhumane policies that force people into isolation at times when 
that that's the worst time for isolation. And even from a public health perspective, even from the perspective of we just want to heal the body, we don't believe in all this spiritual mumbo jumbo, there is still mm-hmm, absolutely good reasons because it gives people hope and it gives them something to do to address their problems. And it's been well documented, even if you want to call it a placebo effect, which I don't believe it is. But even if you want to grant all of that and say, you know, oh, I don't believe in prayer. I don't believe there is a God. There are still strong reasons to let clergy come in and provide religious comfort and support and even to let patients see their family members, which is not the cases. You know, we haven't done those. We specifically do um, cases regarding clergy access. But you, you will find that it will affect people's recovery periods if they feel hope and there's something that they can do for, about their situation. Now, as someone who works on religious freedom cases day in and day out, and I know you feel very passionately about it, how did you feel when Amy Coney Barrett was uh, appointed to the court earlier this week, the Supreme Court? Do you, did that make you feel like religious freedom was in better hands going forward? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes, but it's and it goes back to what I said when you asked whether my division could or would survive a Biden presidency. These values, they're already the law. They're all They're there in the Constitution and in other cases, they're there in federal statutes. And what is so exciting for me about Amy Coney Barrett is that she has said specifically that she will govern without prejudice, without policy preferences. She will look to the original public meaning of the Constitution. She will read, she'll apply proper textualism to statutes, and she will simply enforce the law. And that is such a great day for America because, you know, whatever her personal preferences are, all of us, you know, humans, we have experiences and we have things that we like and we root for and we want more of in our life. But to have a judge who's just going to call the balls and strike and adhere to just not being biased and not to politicize the court, I that is such a good day for America and, and for the Bill of Rights. You make such a great point, Christine, because it is baked into the substance of the United States, uh, a real respect for the dignity mm-hmm. of each person and each person's, each person's conscience and each person's relationship to God. So all we have to do is trust our laws and our Constitution and mm-hmm. we're going to be okay. That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. we... Uh, we have a good thing going even even today you know it's it is quite a, a tumultuous time uh, to say the least yes <laughs> um but I just love reflecting on how good our laws, like we, we have excellent laws on the books now. And our constitution is a incredibly wise, well-drafted document of governance. And, and that is something worth celebrating and not losing sight of how good things yet are even today. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for those very wise words and for all that you do (laughs) at the Office of Civil Rights at HHS. And be assured of our prayers, and we hope to have you back again soon. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight talking with you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at the Catholic association.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday on All Saints Day. 
Jesus came into the world in order to restore us to the image and likeness of God who was holy, holy, holy. He came to make it possible for us to respond to his command, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He came to strengthen us to become perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, merciful as he is merciful. St. Paul tells us as he told the church in Thessalonica, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. So the Solemnity of All Saints is our annual reminder of the purpose for which God created us, redeemed us, sent the Holy Spirit to us, founded the church, and so much more. On All Saints Day, we celebrate those who have followed Jesus all the way, the great and famous saints we know about, and the countless quiet saints, probably many of those who passed on the faith to us, who died in the love of the Lord, now live in his love forever. We also hope one day, this day will be our feast, that others will remember us as we're numbered among the saints. To get to heaven, however, as St. Thomas Aquinas taught, we need to will it, we need to desire it, we need to choose it. All our choices here on earth are forks leading toward or away from God, which we set our feet on or away from the path to heaven, to God, to eternity. It's a choice between true lasting happiness and momentary pleasure, between light and darkness, between good and evil, ultimately between life and death. Jesus came down to show us the way to choose well and to help us to choose well. But there are competing voices that tell us to choose against what God wants. The saints are those who have chosen well. They're the great multitude of men and women just like us from every language and nation who responded to God's grace and made it. On All Saints Day, we recall their example and invoke their intercession so that we might follow them, following Jesus all the way home. In the gospel for the feast, Jesus gathers us around him and presents to us the way to heaven, the way to happiness, the way to holiness, precisely so that we choose to follow him on that path. The way that he shows us stands in stark contrast to the way the majority of people in the world believe will make us happy. Jesus' words present us with the choice on which our lives hinge. Let's listen to him as if we're hearing him for the first time. The world tells us that to be happy, we have to be rich. Jesus says, rather, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The world tells us we're happy when we don't have a concern in the world. Jesus says, on the other hand, blessed are those who are so concerned with others that they mourn over their own and others' miseries, for they will be comforted by him eternally. Worldly know-it-alls say, you have to be strong and powerful to be happy. Jesus, in contrast, retorts, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The spiritually worldly shout increasingly each day, To be happy, you've got to have all your sexual fantasies fulfilled. And our culture promotes people like Hugh Hefner and promiscuous Hollywood vixens as those who have it made. Jesus, however, says, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. The world preaches you're happy when you accept yourself and espouse an I'm okay, you're okay brand of moral relativism. Jesus says, though, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for holiness, for his grace and justification, for they will be filled. The world says you're happy when you don't start a fight but finish it. And people from professional wrestlers to boxers to MMA stars to generals to armchair or backseat presidents shout no mercy. Jesus says, however, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called God's children. 
Our American culture increasingly says you're happy when everybody considers you nice, when you don't have an enemy in the world. Jesus says, though, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And blessed are you when people revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. For their reward will be great in heaven. Blessed are you, the Lord Jesus says, in essence, who are poor in spirit, gentle, merciful, who mourn, who care for what is right, who are pure in heart, who make peace, who are persecuted. Blessed are you. Jesus exalts those whom the world generally regards as weak, he basically says to us, as St. John Paul II once said to young people on the Mount of the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when you seem to be losers, because you are the real winners. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Jesus' words present a constant challenge that demands a deep and abiding conversion of spirit, because so many, including so many of us Catholics, don't really strive to live this way, don't really make the choices that will lead us to eternal blessedness. All Saints Day is an occasion for us to recognize the two voices competing for our hearts, the voice of the Good Shepherd and the voice of blind guides, and to choose the Good Shepherd. On the vigil of All Saints this year, the Church is raising to the altar someone who lived this type of holy life, who heard Jesus' voice and followed him, and helped so many others to do so. Blessed Father Michael McGivney, the founder of the Knights of Columbus, was quiet and unassuming, hardworking, and charitable as a parish priest in New Haven, Connecticut, and Thomaston, Connecticut. He was meek and humble of heart, poor in material things, but rich in God. He mourned over the death of parishioners and sought to console families, not just with the gift of faith, but with concrete help. He was pure in heart and saw God in the disguise of all those who were in need, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the out of work, the ill, or the imprisoned. He was merciful and extended God's mercy to tens of thousands. He brought peace to families whom the devil was trying to divide. He was persecuted by the anti-Catholic majority in New Haven in ways that today would make us blanch. But he soldiered on with faith and grit and taught his parishioners how to be tough too. More than anything, he hungered and thirsted for holiness. And for his parishioners and brother knights through unity, charity, and fraternity to live the Christian life in a holy way. He's praying for all of us that we might live that same Christian life fully in communion with God in this world, so that together with him we may one day rejoice with God forever in heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for holiness. Through the Eucharist in which Jesus comes to make us holy, we will gather on this great feast, surrounded by all the saints in heaven, that great cloud of witnesses cheering us on to victory. We ask the Lord to help us have that hunger, to have that thirst, that desire for holiness, for living the Beatitudes, for saying yes to Christ and no to the standards of the world, so that one day with blessed Michael McGivney, we will indeed be filled forever in heaven. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 